This evening we're looking at Lord's Day 3 from our catechism. And Lord's Day 3 is not terribly encouraging about who we are. But what we saw last week is that we have to have an accurate understanding of who we are if we're to have a real appreciation for who Jesus is. And so we're going to consider together the truths that God's Word shows us, which are summarized in Lord's Day 3. But first I'd like to read with you from Romans chapter 5, the second half of Romans 5. Now you may know that the book of Romans is divided into three parts. The first part talks specifically about our sin. That's the focus of it. That's not all it talks about, but it it focuses on our sin, on our depravity, on our falling away from God. The second part deals with the salvation that God has worked in Christ. The third part calls us to respond to that salvation with all of our lives. So we're in the second part of that. But this is almost a, a synthesis portion because it recalls back to our sin and to our brokenness and asks what's the origin of that and how does Christ relate to that so starting in verse 12 of Romans 5 we have this comparison with where we are where we began and also how Christ was sent to address that therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord's Day 3 of our catechism asks us three simple questions. First of all, did God create man so wicked and perverse? And the answer that the catechism teaches us is no. God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Well then, where does man's corrupt nature come from? And the answer to that is from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners, corrupt from conception on. 
Well, that brings us to the third question. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? And the answer is yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a world in an age of danger and disruption. Perhaps, well not perhaps, definitely more than any other age, we are able to behold the ugliness and the widespread nature of man's misbehavior toward man. And that's putting it very, very mildly. We look in the newspaper, no. We turn on the internet. We check out CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and a thousand smaller news sources and we see all of the ways in which men harm and maim and disfigure and mistreat one another. We see riots first in this city and then in that. We see terrorism causing men, women, and children to tremble and fear going in places where there are large crowds lest some sudden blast might tear through the crowd littering the streets with flesh, with blood. We see it in the Middle East where cities once beautiful have become war zones. We see it increasingly in Europe, where cities that are filled with immigrants that are subdivided into ethnic communities suddenly are torn apart by violence that seems to strike suddenly and unexpectedly and to tear apart the fabric and the safety of society. We see it in our own land. Starting in 2001 with the attacks on 9-11, We have all lived with slightly bated breath, wondering when the next attack will come. When will the next Boston Marathon bombing happen? When will the next uprising occur? We see that and our minds naturally ask the question. They must ask the question, why? Why is this happening? What is going on? How do we stop it? And it's fascinating to hear how our world and the leaders of our world respond to that question. Why is it happening and what do we do to stop it? Almost overwhelmingly here in the West, by that I mean the United States and Europe, the answer is, well, I believe in the inherent goodness of man. I believe that if you take away all of the dysfunction, all of the situations that impose an unnatural pressure on man, that man will rise to the occasion and he will do what is good to his fellow man. He will seek the good of his community. He will seek to build up man. And so when we see terrorism, when we see war, when we see all of this struggle and strife, it must mean that dysfunction has dulled the natural inherent goodness of man. And so the answer they propose is we need to remove the dysfunction. We need to remove the pressure. And how do we do that? We give them government grants. We give them government housing. We give them job training and schooling. We give them places to go and places to live. We give them counseling and places to 
gather in communities seeking to calm the dysfunction, seeking to remove the pressure that we believe must be causing these outbursts. But if you have a child, if you have a child who is throwing tantrums, he's throwing his toys, he's hitting his playmates, he's talking back to his parents, and you try to respond to that by coddling him, by making sure he has absolutely everything he needs, by, by giving him more toys, more things to play with, you know what won't happen? The temper tantrums will not stop. In fact, they will increase. Because he will have learned that that works. Because what caused the tantrums wasn't that his inherent goodness was being dulled by the stress of his situation. It was sin. It was selfishness. It was self-centeredness that made him upset that someone had something that he did not. And so he lashed out at that person in sin, in evil, in wickedness. And you see, that's why these government programs, that's why these attempts to remove the pressure, they don't work, and they won't work, and they can't work. It's because that approach to terrorism, that approach to the misbehavior of man, that approach to crime, it fails to wrestle with the essential truth that is set forth in Lord's Day 3 that, is, that permeates God's Word. And that's that the sin of our earthly father, Adam, our first father, has ruined man's nature. And all of our sin, all of our misbehavior, from the great big things that make headlines like terrorism, school shootings, and the like, all the way down to that temper tantrum of a two-year-old, all of it can be traced back to that first sin of Adam and the corruption of human nature that rose from it. And brothers and sisters, if we are to understand why Jesus had to come and why he did what he did, we have to understand the sin of our earthly father ruined man's nature. That's where we have to start. That's what we have to understand from the get-go. And unless we get that, we can't make any progress. In society, we can't make any progress in ourselves. But to see that, to recognize the significance of what Adam did in the garden, and we're only going to consider half of it tonight. We're going to consider the other half next week, Lord willing. We have to start not with Adam's sin and not with the consequences of that sin. We have to start with the creation of man. The Bible shows us that man was created for perfection. And so the first thing we need to consider this evening is how we were given a nature created for perfection. If we go back all the way to the start, to Genesis 1, we find that God, when He made man, when He made all things, He made it without all the brokenness, without all the dysfunction. Over the course of six days, He made everything. Actually, He created it all at the start, and then he began forming it. He began separating it into different realms and different categories, forming it into the, the form that we see today in large measure, although it's been uh, changed throughout the years by such events as the flood and civilization. And at every stage, we read that it was good. 
And then on the sixth day, after God had brought forth the creatures that would inhabit the land, we read that God said, let us make man in our image. He's speaking to himself. It's an intra-Trinitarian discussion. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You understand, that's not a visible thing. That's not a physical likeness. That's the likeness of his character. He was going to make man in perfect righteousness and holiness and freedom. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And that's what God did. God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then God blessed them. And he set them over the world that he had created. And he gave them the task. You care for it all. You reflect me in your caring for it all. You multiply the bearers of my image so that you can spread throughout this world. And you form, you order, you create, you build, you strengthen, you exercise dominion over all that I have made. And then chapter 2 takes up the story from there, focusing on the creation of mankind. Shows how God created Adam and then instructed him to take care of Eden and to avoid the forbidden tree. There was one tree, the fruit of which he was not to eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we read how God created a helper for Adam. One who was perfectly suited to him. And then at the end of that chapter we read, They, he and his wife, were both naked and they were not ashamed. What we see here is our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the perfection for which they were made, created by the very hand of God, having spoken face to face with God, given all the gifts and the talents that they would need for exercising dominion over all the creation, upright in their behavior and holy, nothing holding them back from doing everything God had commanded, including the pinnacle of our purpose, which is to demonstrate the character of God over all the earth. There was nothing stopping them from that. They had no shame. They had no fear. They had no worry. Why? Because God made them, God set them there, and God made it all very good. In fact, that's the last thing we read in chapter 1. God saw everything He had made, and indeed it was very good. This is where we began. This is the start of our story, created for perfection. And to this man, God gave that mandate, serve me in this perfection that you've been given. Use the life and the strength and the intelligence that have been bestowed upon you and put them to work for me. You've been granted possession of all the plants of the earth. Now cultivate them. Eat of them. Glorify me by, their, by your use of them. You've been given dominion over the earth and all the creatures that inhabit them. Now exercise that dominion on my behalf. Reflect my creativity in your creativity. My dominion in your dominion. Prosper in your perfection. That's the call that was laid upon mankind at the very start. And so Adam and Eve lived in the garden. They enjoyed God's creation and God's goodness. They were both naked, but they felt no shame. And that's what we should expect because they had done nothing wrong. Shame did not yet exist. Because sin did not yet exist. Rebellion did not yet exist. 
And that's the way God intended it. Man, living with man, living before the world, without shame, without fear, with no need to cover. That's how God made us. His one ultimate purpose being, as our Presbyterian brothers confess, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And He was equipped to do it. But then things drastically changed, didn't they? Because sin entered the picture. Listen, listen to how sin entered the world. Right at the very beginning of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now in that first snippet of the encounter, we hear the nature of sin. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said, He questions God. He calls into doubt what God has declared. That's the nature of sin. Questioning. Has God really said? We see that today, don't we? We feel it in our own hearts. I know we're not supposed to lie, but but has God really said I mustn't do it in this situation? I know we're not supposed to steal, but... But is it really wrong when? And we find loopholes. We seek out ways in which to justify the sin that we want to commit. Not the sin that our neighbor wants to commit. Not the sin that's committed against us, but the sin that I want to commit. I find ways to justify that. And Satan was teaching man to do exactly that from the very start. And then the woman responds. She she entertains the thought that the serpent had introduced And his next attack, well, it demonstrates not just the nature, but the heart of sin. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the heart of sin, and that heart has two chambers. The first chamber denies the truth of what God has said. Because you understand, we cannot sin without implicitly calling God a liar. When we sin, we disobey God, and God has said that His commands are good. So when we disobey God, we're saying that God lied, that that what He forbade was actually something that we needed or that would be good for us. So He calls God a liar, and then He urges her to be like God, to desire to be like God. And she takes the bait. She reaches out her hand, examining the fruit, noting first that it is good for food. That is, that physically, it was edible, it was food, it could nourish. Folks, that's the danger right there. As soon as we do that, as soon as we examine the sin, as soon as we take hold of that which God has forbidden and we consider whether we've already lost the battle, haven't we? Kids, you know what I'm talking about. Dad says, now don't touch that. And you go over and you look at it and you imagine what it'd be like to touch that. Or mom says, don't do this. And you let your mind wander over why it might be nice to do that. 
That's what she did. She allowed herself the leisure of considering what it would be like to disobey God, what it might benefit her. She notes that it's pleasant to the eyes, approving its color, its texture, its general appearance. What sin is not pleasant to behold? What sin is not delightful to contemplate, right? And that's what she does. She considers how it could be nice to eat the fruit of that tree. But the part that really sets her in motion, the the point of no return is when she determines that that fruit was desirable to make one wise. She took the bait. She determined that God was in fact lying, that, that it was not a bad thing to eat of that tree and that she could be like God and that that would be a good thing, that that was what she wanted. And so she... She takes the fruit and she takes a bite. And then she gives to Adam, who is with her, to his eternal shame. He didn't stop her. He didn't head her off at the pass. He didn't educate her or protect her. No. He let her go. And when she wasn't immediately struck down, then he followed suit. He had a bite. And suddenly we read in verse 3 of Genesis, or verse 7 of Genesis 3, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Their eyes were opened. They did come to know good and evil, but not in the way that God does. God knows good and evil because He's the one who determines what is good and what is evil, what's right and what is wrong. They knew it experientially. They knew it by entering into that rebellion. And immediately, they knew the shame of sin. They recognized one another's nakedness. That doesn't mean that the human body is shameful or wrong or bad at all. But it means that the conscience... The conscience of man in sin immediately seeks to hide. It seeks isolation. It seeks to conceal the things that we have done. So they made coverings to silence their guilty conscience. Indeed, my friends, our first parents had in one sense become like God in that they suddenly knew evil from good. But they knew it in a tragic way because that knowledge cut them off from God. The nature which had been created for perfection now was fallen in rejection. They would receive God's curse because their sin was an act of rebellion against Him. They would be cast out of the garden, cast away, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in the midst of this sin, this rebellion that they had embraced. But but being cast out of the garden meant they would be cast out of the presence of God. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did because they were cast from His presence and that's the essence of death. And from that time forward, man has had two traits. Every single man, woman, and child of every race, of both genders, of every age, we have had two traits in common. Again, we're going to consider one next week a lot more carefully, and that's our guilt. But the one we need to consider this evening is our corruption. Because you see, Adam was not just a guy. Adam was our head. Adam was our representative. And that meant that whatever he did, and he knew this, whatever he did would hold for us, would impact us, all of those who came after him, all of those who were born of his line. Young people, you understand this. You have school competitions, right? Well, we have a a chamber choir here. A very, very small selection of your school. Individuals who, who... 
know how to sing and enjoy using that gift. But I'm certain that your conductor has given you the speech. You need to conduct yourself. You need to behave yourself in a way that is beyond reproach. Why? Because you represent the school and you represent God. And that means that if you misbehave, if you act in a way that's shameful, you don't bring shame just upon yourself, but you bring shame upon your whole school and ultimately on your family and upon God. And you get that, right? Because you're standing there as a representative of your school. Well, that's what Adam did for the whole human race. And so whatever he did would reflect on us, but not just on our reputation. God would hold us responsible. Again, we're going to talk about that guilt part later. But it would also affect the nature with which we were born. The Puritan said, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. And that's exactly what Romans chapter 5 said. It says, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam we all sinned. In Adam we all became guilty. But also in Adam we all became sinful. In Genesis, a little beyond that opening, we read about how mankind spread. They filled the earth indeed, but they filled the earth with sin. There were two lines initially. The line of those who were following after God and then the line also of those who were following after the serpent, following after Cain. But they began to intermingle, intermingle and mix. And finally we read in Genesis 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why? Because Adam bore children after not God's image but his image which was corrupt, which was sinful. And so by the time we get to the age of Noah, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And so God sent a curse that destroyed all of mankind except for eight people. But after those eight people were the only ones left, after the floodwaters receded from over all the earth, those eight came forth and they offered a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God and God smelled the scent of that sacrifice. And he said, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. There were only eight of them. They were the best of the best. They were the ones who who most pleased God, and yet even of them, that corruption was still there. That sinfulness was still there. And folks, we experience it still today. Jesus said in John chapter 3, That even though the light of God came into the world when He came, this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That's what we heard in Romans 5. That was the consequence of Adam's sin on us. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. How bad was it? How tragic was the fall? Folks, it was so tragic that we don't want to be saved. We don't want to serve God. We start out corrupt and sinful. And you all understand that. Our parents didn't have to teach us to steal our siblings' toys. They didn't have to teach us to lie when we got caught doing wrong. We understood that perfectly well from the start. 
And we all know that struggle when we get caught trying to get out by blaming someone else, by lying about what we've done or not done, seeking to pass the blame just as Adam did, just as Eve did when they were confronted with their sin in the garden. Because we are truly their offspring. We bear their image in its brokenness, in its fallenness. Unless, unless, the catechism rightly summarizes God's word in saying that we are entirely corrupt. So corrupt, in fact, that we are utterly unable to do any good. And that we will naturally embrace evil unless. And in that word is our hope. There is the possibility of deliverance from this nature, but not on our own. Such deliverance, if it is to come, it has to come from outside of us and it has to be dramatic. The Catechism says we are so corrupt that we can do only evil unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. We are fallen in sin because of our first father Adam. If we are to be raised up into new righteousness and restored to God, we need to have another father. We need to have another head who restores us graciously. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21 says... Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That is the only way we can be restored from this corruption, from this brokenness, from this rebellion, which comes so natural that it destroys us. And so we see the import, the impact of the comparison that Paul sets before us. And this is what I want to leave you with this evening. I want you to ponder in this coming week that comparison between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the last man, the great man, the final head. Of Adam, Paul declares in verse 16, judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of that one man's offense, death reigned. Verse 18, the result of that one man's offense was judgment for all of us. Verse 19, through the disobedience of that one man, we were all made sinners. Not just condemned because of what he did, but condemned also because we, every one of us, from the very start have ratified his decision to sin by our own sin, by our own rebellion, by our own wickedness. That's the fruit of what Adam did. He ruined us. However, of Jesus, Paul declares, verse 16, judgment followed one sin, bringing condemnation. But Jesus' gift followed many sins and brought justification, brought forgiveness. Verse 17, Adam's sin put death on the throne, but Jesus' grace puts triumphant saints on the throne at his side. Verse 18, one offense brought condemnation, but one amazing act of righteousness brought life for those who had been born into sin and death. Verse 19, Christ's one act of obedience, an act that spanned His entire existence, that one obedience makes many righteous in the comfort of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, this is what we need above all else. We have a nature that needs not government aid, not counseling, not coddling, 
Not programs to make us feel better. We need complete rejuvenation. We need complete transformation. We need rescue. And that can come only through Jesus. He told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's why he came. He came to give us new life. To rescue us out of the darkness and the brokenness of our sin. And to give us new life in him. And when he rescues us, he begins. He begins to transform our nature. We'll talk about that later at great length, Lord willing. But understand this, that He loved us so much that He doesn't leave us in that corruption that Adam earned for us. He begins changing us. He begins transforming us. He works faith in us and then He begins teaching us to turn away from that sin, to take up that righteousness, to show love to our neighbor, to show love to God, to begin worshiping the Lord our God and Him alone while we put off all the sin, all the idolatry, all the pride, all the lust that came so natural. He absolutely rejuvenates us and makes us something new. We bore from the start, every one of us, we bore the image of Adam. But in Christ, by faith, we now are beginning to bear the image of the Son of God. And that's what we were made for. So this coming week, I want to urge you, take up that text, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Look at what Adam did. Look at what he earned for us. But look too at what Jesus did. Look at how He reversed the situation, how He rejuvenates us, and how He brings us life out of the midst of death. And then resolve. Resolve to trust in Him. Resolve to live for Him. And resolve to praise God that He, understanding what had come of our nature, He rescued us in the way that no one else could. To Him be all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, You are so good and so gracious. Would You please work in our hearts to remind us, to, to impart to us a true understanding of the depth and the extent of our need which was ruining us and of the absolute rejuvenation, the new life, the new birth that comes to us in Christ and in Him alone. And Father, I pray that You would so impart to us an understanding of the grace that You've shown us in Christ that we would be unable to restrain ourselves from confessing You and living for You and turning away from the old nature that so displeased You. Father, we pray this all in the name of Jesus who has made us Your sons and daughters. Amen.